Well, we start a new series this morning called The Mission. It is actually one of Pastor David's uh, series, but I've been given the privilege to kind of kick us off uh, this morning. And I know we looked at mission earlier uh, this summer, especially when it comes to God's global mission and our responsibility in that. Uh, But here in this series, uh, we are working from this big idea. God uses the found to reach the lost. God uses the found in order to reach the lost. So we're looking specifically at our privilege and our responsibility as it relates to the mission of simply connecting people to Jesus. And while our topics and passages will be different uh, each week, two scriptures will be uh, kind of centrally woven throughout this series, and they're both familiar to you. Uh, One is the Great Commission. Out of Matthew 28, Jesus tells us, as we are going, to make disciples of all the nations. And then in Acts 1.8, he tells us how we're going to do that, that the Holy Spirit would come upon us and give us power. And so we're given that power in order to be a witness uh, for Jesus And so these two passages together could arguably be the central mission, if you will, uh, the theme that Jesus left his disciples with right before he ascended back to heaven. And so our goal in this series is in how do we apply that? How do we best understand uh, the mission? This morning we're going to talk about fame. And so this is our audience participation segment of the sermon, and so I'm going to give you a first name, and you're going to fill in the last name of the famous person. All right, we'll start with this, Michael Jordan. Jordan. All right, good. Exactly who I was thinking of, Brittany. Well, look at there. How about that? Tiger. All right. Bob. Evans. <laughs> Pastor Bob, I hope you're watching. That's what, I didn't know if we we're going to land at Bob Goff or Bob Ross, maybe. Bob Evans, how about that? All right, now if you want to continue a little bit in the game, I'll give you a quote, and you can see uh, who said it. The first is this, I want to be famous everywhere. I want to be famous everywhere. Maybe it'll be uh, up there, maybe, maybe, maybe. There we go, all right. Anyone know who said it? This guy, not me. <laughs> this guy did. Famed opera singer, Luciano Pavarotti. All right. Uh, next one, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. Anyone? Oh, I heard it. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Great boxer. Next one, I feel like I'm the best, but you're not going to get me to say that. <laughs> Anyone? This would be go to football, Jerry Rice. All right, and then the last one. I won't be happy until I'm famous like God. Anyone? This would be the words of mega superstar Madonna. She's so famous, she doesn't even need a last name. And by the way, I had to work really hard to find a photo that would be acceptable for the screens <laughs> here in church on, on Sunday morning. All right. Well, what's fascinating to me about what she said is this didn't happen early in her career uh, or even as her career and her fame was beginning to increase. 
She said that after she had accumulated so much fame, so many accolades, so much adoration that one could possibly receive as a person. Uh, Her goal was fame, and she achieved it so fully, especially in the 90s, that she was arguably the most famous person, uh, at least superstar, if you will, on the planet, yet it still wasn't enough. She wanted to be more famous than even God himself. About a decade ago, uh, at really the peak of the reality TV movement and as social media was beginning to take its hold uh, among teenagers, many surveys were conducted around this idea of fame. And, And more than half of the teenagers surveyed in that time always chose as their top Uh, desire in life, fame, even over a career. That their greatest desire would be famous. One of the questions on the survey gave teens the opportunity to press a magic button and become either stronger, smarter, famous, or more beautiful. Over half the teens said, if I could push a button, I would choose more famous. That's what I want to be. Fast forward to today, these surveys uh, continue. You'll find a growing wave of teenagers rejecting traditional career paths in favor of a chance to be an influencer or to be famous, some kind of celebrity. Some 54% of Generation Z said they'd like to be an influencer. 86% express interest in posting social media content for money and for fame. Now, while it would be easy to criticize this upcoming generation on their thirst for fame, can we pause for a moment and say, I can see that even inside me? Do you see that inside you this morning? Even though so many of us have read or watched or heard the stories of those who have achieved fame, they've gotten a large dose of it and have even said to us, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's still something inside of us that desires it. So why are we so drawn to fame? And if it doesn't satisfy, why do we want it? Well, would it surprise you if I told you this morning that you were actually created for it? You and I were actually created for fame. It's it's true. We were created for fame, but it wasn't too far into our story. In fact, it was at the very beginning that we lost sight of true fame. We confuse the fame that we are created for with the fame that could be collected for ourselves. We, we confuse the, the fame that our souls long for, for the one that comes out of the core of our human flesh that it craves so deeply, the desire to make a name for ourselves or to build a platform or to be seen as great, to become an influencer are all accepted measures of fame today. See, deep down, we'd all have to admit that we live and long for the adoration of the crowd or the sound of applause But here's the truth this morning. You were created for fame, but not to keep it to yourself. You've been created by God to partner in his mission, to point to his greatness, to be a mouthpiece for his glory. See, you have deep inside you a desire that transcends all the trivial trappings of this world and longs for the greatness of the eternal 
If you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand with me for our scripture text this morning. And even though this may stretch you a little bit out of your comfort zone, would you stretch up your hands in a posture of worship? And we're actually going to read this text out loud together this morning from Isaiah 26, 8. Read it with me. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, are the very first words we say to you, no matter what the question that is asked of us. And we long to walk in your truth, to be obedient to your laws. Father, this morning, may we be able to say, as we just did together, that your name, your renown, are the very desires of our soul. Would you meet us in your word this morning, we pray. For the glory of your great name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We'll dive in this morning to see some truths, some challenges, if you will, how we're best to understand and live out the mission. And the first is this the fame of God's name is what we declare. And I don't think anywhere in scripture is this clearer uh, where we get a vivid picture of God's desire, his passion, that his name and glory would be made great uh, other than in Isaiah 48 and how uh, Isaiah lays it out for us. Here God says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. See, what this text drives home for us is really the centrality of God in his own affections. God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory and fame of his name. So it would make sense that we would follow suit. In fact, the very first question and answer of our uh, shorter catechism reminds us of what we're to be about when it asks this. What is the chief end? Think, what is the goal? What is the mission? What is the chief end of man? And we know the answer to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now that answer isn't a direct quotation of scripture, but the wisdom of that answer is certainly spans the pages of scripture. The Bible tells us with great clarity that you and I, all of mankind was created and designed to bring glory to God's name. And so the chief end, if you will, the mission of Christ's followers in the church is to bring glory to God's great name, to make his name famous, if you will. And I would argue there is no higher calling. Now, that's why I'm excited that we're starting a series on the mission of God, our role in bringing God's good news to a lost world by looking at and focusing on the greatness and the glory and the fame of God's name. Because that's the mission, to glorify God, to make his name great to the very ends of the earth. Now, I've seen, been a part of, experienced many evangelical Christians and churches that would actually disagree with that. 
I've seen many churches that would say man's chief end is to evangelize the lost. There's no higher calling. That is what we are to be about, is evangelizing uh, the lost, bringing others to the Lord. Well, now this is a series on evangelism. Make no mistake, I place a high value on evangelism. I regard it the duty of every Christ follower. And I would say to you, any church that doesn't care to evangelize can't be a healthy church. And likewise, any follower of Christ that desires to be spiritually healthy must have as its core, if you will, evangelism as a part of it. Evangelism is a privilege and a responsibility, but I don't believe evangelism is our highest goal. It's not our highest aim. See, our biblical worldview would say at the starting point, the center of everything in the entire universe is God. He was there before our existence. He was there before this world's existence. And so the biblical mindset then moves from God being the center, and it moves out from there, which means we interpret the world through the lens of God being at the center, the focal point. He's the measure and means of all things, which means for you, follower of Jesus, God's got to be the center the center of everything that you are about. That's why Colossians 3 reminds us, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That the entirety of our lives would be consumed with keeping God at the center and making his name great. Remember, Jesus modeled this for us even when he taught us how to pray. He reminds us what our lives are to be about even as we pray. In, in Matthew, the beginning of the, the model prayer, our Father in heaven, may your name be made holy. Father in heaven, may your name be central. May it be the first thing on our lips. May it be the very core of how we order our lives. May it be kept central and foremost and preeminent in our lives. May it be holy. May it be set apart just like you want us to live. And guess what? When we position God rightly in our lives, when we keep him as the highest aim, I believe evangelism will flow freely. Because what else is there great to talk about if God's the greatest? If he's the center of everything, what better to give our words to the greatness of God's name and how others can know him. A second thing we see this morning is the beauty of God's glory is what we point to. Now, with many doctrines in Scripture, we're able to kind of flip through the Bible and point to some uh, default passages, if you will, that describe the issue at hand, and then we're able to walk away with a pretty good understanding of that topic. But that strategy doesn't work with the doctrine of God's glory, because God's glory resides above and beyond any type of description or definition in Scripture, we get this picture that God's glory in the original language is his, his weightiness, his immense value, his, his worth. And, and so you could say for sure that God is glorious. And certainly the Bible declares that he is. But isn't it difficult to fully grasp exactly what the Scriptures are talking about there? 
to put it into a concise uh, definition, if you will. Uh, I could give you a challenge to to try to capture for me the grandeur of the glory uh, of God. And you would need to read the entire Bible from cover to cover over and over and, and over again. And what you'd find is that the glory of God is so majestic that it's scattered across every page of your Bible. Ezekiel, remember the prophet, tried to kind of pin down this vision that he had, this experience of encountering God's glory. It's in uh, the first chapter, and I'll read starting in verse 26. And above uh, the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And upward from downward, or upward from the appearance of his waist, I saw as it was like a gleaming metal, the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward, what the appearance of his waist, I saw again the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud at the day of rain." So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. That's a proper response to the beauty of God. It causes us to fall on our very faces in worship. That's the greatness and beauty of our God. I love how Paul Tripp talks about God's glory. He says, in everything that he is and in everything that he does, God is greater than human description. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. Every characteristic of God and every accomplishment from his hand is totally perfect. This is what we mean when we talk about God's glory. The stunning reality of this universe is that there exists one who is the greatest, the most beautiful, and the most perfect in every way. God is gloriously great, gloriously beautiful, and gloriously perfect. There is none like him. He has no rivals, and no valid comparisons can be made to him. That encaptures what we're trying to to grasp here when we talk about the beauty and the glory of God. And because God is glorious in every possible way, he alone stands in this vast universe as the only one who's worthy of your worship, worthy of the surrender of your heart, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your, your future. And I would ask you this morning, have you experienced that beauty? Have you come face to face with the beauty and the glory of God? Have you surrendered your life to declare that glory? Thankfully for us, where Ezekiel got a vision, we get greater clarity as we journey into the New Testament. Because there in the New Testament, we see the beauty of God's glory on display Because we see it in God's one and only Son, Jesus. Remember what John tells us? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did we see as a result? We saw God's glory. 
We saw God's glory incarnate in human form as Jesus walked the earth. We've seen true beauty. We know what it looks like. And beauty showed up in a feed trough. Beauty showed up in a manger. And then we held, beheld beauty in a bloodied back, in a brow that was bleeding from a crown of thorns. We saw beauty in hands and feet that were pierced by nails as God's one and only son, Jesus, hung on the cross. That was beauty. Now we'd have to say that doesn't seem too beautiful to us at times. See, as a culture, we're consumed with a different kind of beauty, a beauty that the cosmetic industry globally is valued at over $570 billion. And you can add on top of that another $120 billion that's, that's spent just on cosmetic surgery alone. And it's all spin on, what does Proverbs 31 say? Beauty that's fading. Beauty that won't last Beauty that's slipping out of our grips. But I'll tell you this morning, there's a beauty that never fades. There's a beauty that lasts forever. And when you find God most beautiful, your life and your words will reflect that beauty. When you treasure him for who he is, your words and your life will reflect that John Piper says it best when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we revel in his beauty and in his glory, we find that there's nothing more satisfying in the entire world, yet that will be the continual battle of our souls each and every day. Because each and every day we're grasping and grabbing and trying to cling to things that we think will make us happy. Things that will satisfy. Things that will bring that beauty we desire into our lives. And we've got a God saying, I'm here. I'm what you're looking for. I'm the beauty that you desire. I've worked with teenagers the majority of my ministry life. And teenage boys aren't particularly known for their attention to hygiene. <laughs> I've spent so many years at middle school and high school camp in the boys' cabin that I'm not sure the smell will ever leave my nostrils. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many conversations uh, that I've had uh, that was sparked by this statement. But I don't need a shower. I was in the lazy river today. Or I was swimming in the lake today. Oh, yeah. And then so many questions that started for me. Did you even bring deodorant? <laughs> Do you own a toothbrush, right? <laughs> but then there's a day when all of that changes for teenage boys. Those aspects of hygiene that never mattered all of a sudden matter. In a moment, it changes. Their clothes change. They start to look good. They actually smell good. They take multiple showers, and all you have to ask is one question. What's her name? <laughs> Seriously. Because that teenage boy has discovered beauty, and everything changes. 
everything changes. We all have a longing for beauty. Men and women alike, teenagers alike. Let me tell you, that longing for beauty will never be satisfied in that boyfriend or girlfriend, that spouse, that dream house, maybe even mansion, that promotion at work or getting that job you've always longed for, the beach house, the mountain house, the ultimate vacation that you've longed to go on. Your longing for beauty will never be satisfied in any of those things. It will only be satisfied in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This summer on our Zambia mission, I had an incredible privilege to stand in front of Victoria Falls, one of the seven wonders of the natural world. And I'll tell you, it absolutely took my breath away. The beauty of the falls is absolutely astounding. And as I stood there trying to take it all in, I, I had this moment where my mind was actually captured a, a bit more upward. And I thought, as beautiful as these are, there's a God who simply just spoke all of these into existence. With a word from his mouth, this amazing beauty was created. How much more beautiful must he be? His majesty, his glory, his beauty eclipses Victoria Falls. And when your heart has been captivated by that beauty, you can't help but talk about it. The beauty of God can't be kept silent. Even Psalms remind us the heavens declare the glory of God. And so should we. Third thing this morning is the priority of God's mission is how we are to order our lives. If I were to pull you aside sometime this week and just simply ask you, hey, what's this all about? Like, why do you come here to Wildwood? Why are you in a small group or why does our church exist even? Well, why are we in Uganda? Why do we mobilize and send teams to serve in Nicaragua? Well, why are we investing in Tallahassee, ministering to hurting families or to kids in foster care, to the hungry or to the widows or to the least of these? Why are we doing these things? As one of your pastors, I wonder, could you answer? Do you, do you know why? Why? Why do we do what we do, and I'll tell you, we've got to know the answer. Because the reality is, if Wildwood is not doing what God is doing, then what we're doing doesn't matter at all. If we are not up to as a church what God is up to, what he values, what he prioritizes, then we are simply spinning our wheels. Do you want your life to matter? The only way for your life to matter to live a life of significance is to make God that which matters most in your life. What does Matthew remind us? Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the priority. That's how we order our lives. He is our ultimate priority. Well, it was the year 2000, and I joined some 40,000 other college students in the middle of a field called Shelby Farms in Memphis, Tennessee. 
And we gathered there for a day of prayer and a day of worship and a day of fasting and a day of sitting under teaching of God's word. And I'll tell you, it was there that the trajectory of my life and ministry was forever changed when a man stood up to preach that I had barely heard the name of. His name was John Piper. I'd like for you to take a listen to some of what he preached that day. You might want to sit down. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them, which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference, because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. One of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell, and that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. And then he said, if you got those things, the word still Stinging words ring in my ears. It would be the greatest tragedy of your life. And then he opened God's word to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. And he read this. But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You see, faith family, the cross is the mission. It's the pinnacle of God's glory and his fame. It's the heart of the gospel. Uh, The cross reminds us that this world is nothing for us because Christ is everything to us. So could I challenge you to boast in the cross Make much of Jesus. It's the only thing in this world worth making much of. 
It's the only thing in this world worth giving every ounce of your energy to. Because if the cross didn't happen, we don't exist. Without the cross, we live under the wrath and condemnation of God. If the cross didn't exist, we stand before a holy God to receive nothing but judgment and punishment. But because of the cross, praise God, we have hope. We have a reason to boast. Because of the cross, we have an opportunity to live in relationship with God and fulfill the, his purpose for our lives. We wouldn't waste our lives. but We'd advance the gospel to the very ends of the earth. See, if you've always been confused by why people would wish their lives to go all over the world, it's because of the cross. It's because we believe everything that when God says, I will, he means it. That he will accomplish what he will. And he cannot fail. So if we go to speak the good news to parts of the world where there's no visible presence of his fame, it's because we have the promise that by our death or by our proclamation of his word, his glory will be established. The most famous person you've likely never heard of is a person by the name of Edward Kimball. The story is how God used a very ordinary man for extraordinary purposes. His story began back in the early uh, 1800s when Kimball was born in Massachusetts. He would grow up and eventually become the Sunday school teacher at his church in Boston. It's there he met a young man that was coming to uh, his Sunday school class, not because he wanted to, but because he was working at his uncle's store and his uncle actually required it as a part of his employment. So here's a young boy that's resistant to the grace of God and it provided Mr. Kimball with some very interesting and frustrating conversations. But Kimball didn't give up. He went so far to continue to build a relationship with this young man, even visiting him at his shoe store. And as that relationship continued to build, eventually the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. And that young man was converted. That young man's name was Dwight Lyman Moody, the founder of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Well, among the millions of people that D.L. Moody shared the gospel with was the, the name of a London pastor, Frederick Brotherton Meyer. F.B. Meyer would then go on to share the good news with a Presbyterian evangelist by the name of John Wilbur Chapman, who then would play a major part in a young man coming to faith by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham began, uh, I'm sorry, um, Chapman influenced uh, the 20th century evangelist Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday then played an instrumental part in the faith walk of Mordecai Ham, who created a Christian radio broadcasting in the early 1930s. Ham's preaching helped lead another young man to faith. His name was William Franklin Graham, Jr. You know him better as Billy Graham. One of the most influential preachers of the 20th century. God took a man in a Sunday school classroom 
and an uncle in a shoe store to bring millions of people into the kingdom. All it takes is one person, one man, one woman, one teenager to listen to what you have to say for the gospel message to take off and grow like a wildfire. But you know what? I find it pretty encouraging that most people don't even know or remember Edward Kimball's name. Honestly, I'd be okay with nobody remembering or knowing my name either. In fact, I find it very challenging. The words of a Moravian missionary from the 1700s, Nicholas von Zindendorf, who said this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It rings very true to the very words in John's gospel. He must increase. I must decrease. Could that be our goal, faith family? Would you make that your personal goal? That my life would be set on fire for the mission of God. That the fame of God's name would go to the very ends of the earth. That your name, your renown, would be the very desire of our hearts. God, help us make your name great so that other people can get connected to you through Jesus.